Welcome to another episode of Blindness No Barrier, a memoir of David Blythe. I am John Coleman and this is the sixth of a series of interviews focusing on the different aspects of the remarkable life of David Blythe. It will cover the key aspects of David's life that made him the person that he is, with a particular focus on the pivotal role David played in the development of human rights for people with disabilities, both in Australia and worldwide. The episodes are produced by myself and edited by Robert Love. The music is by the very talented Jeff Irvin, and I appreciate the support of Blind Citizens Australia in the promotion of this memoir. We begin this episode with an interview of Jeff Gibbs, asking him to share his own insights into David and to reflect on some of his major achievements. Firstly, welcome, Jeff, and thank you for being a part of David's memoir. That's my pleasure, John. You know, he's a he's a fabulous man, and uh, it's nice to see that somebody is putting something together to uh, mark his contribution. Thank you. Um, to help create a sense of context, Jeff, could you please tell us how you know about David and in what ways you've worked with him? Well, it goes back quite a long way, John. I, I first met David at the BCA convention in 1977 and uh, following that, well the reason I was there, I became the chief executive of the Royal New Zealand Foundation for the Blind in late 1976. So the next year I went across to um, the BCA convention as a guest speaker uh, to give some indication of how I thought my presence might change things here in New Zealand. So that was the first time I met David. After that, there were various interagency meetings in Australia. Um, specifically, we were looking at cooperation between libraries, um, but there was also the Blindness Forum. And with New Zealand being on its own as a service provider, it uh, provided me with a lot of background and a lot of information I wouldn't have otherwise had. So I ran into David at those meetings and then it would have been around 1980, um, the World Council for the Welfare of the Blind was in existence at that time, uh, which was made up of agencies, and the International Federation of the Blind, which was uh, organisations of the blind. And we both had separate general assemblies. But at that 1980 assemblies of both, there was quite a lot of chatter about merging. Um, because you had the same people at each in the main, and it meant if you went to a convention that was lasting for weeks um, rather than days. So once that decision was made, a group was put together to discuss the merger, um, look at developing a constitution, and David and I were both part of that, and then we met up uh, again at the first or the inaugural assembly of the World Blind Union in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia in 1984. David became regional president and I was a member of the executive committee, elected then too. And out of that we decided it would be um, helpful to, to travel together. Um, and that partnership grew over time because I ultimately became the regional president for the Oceania region as it was then and then Asia Pacific. Uh, David became president um, as the third president and by that time uh, I was treasurer of WBU. So we travelled together throughout the region and then to the officers meetings at different parts of the world. So I can see I was his sighted guide. So out of that grew a, uh, a natural friendship and subsequent to all of the business we've done together, we've done quite a lot of personal trips. Uh, probably the most recent was a, a real cracker we had to Stewart Island a couple of years ago. And I think the only problem we had was that um, Jess, David's wife, she caught more fish 
than David and I put together. So I guess what I'm saying from 1977 to the present, uh, we've developed what's become a very, a very fortunate um, personal 40-year friendship. Mm. As you know, Jeff, this podcast is focusing on David's role in establishing and promoting human rights for people with disabilities, both in Australia and worldwide. How do you see David's role in this, and how significant do you think it's been? Well, I, I would say it was huge um, and significant. Each of the presidents of the World Blind Union, John, brought a, a, a different element. And if we go back right to the beginning, Sheikh Abdullah established the financial base for the world body to get itself underway. Uh, Sir Duncan Watson, who was the second president, he was a lawyer. So obviously his focus was on structure and operations. Uh, David, he brought a completely different focus altogether because what he did, he brought people to the fore. He had this ability of reaching out to people. And if I look at China, um, China was just coming onto the world stage. And David and I spent a lot of time there and he eased them in to Western ways of thinking. He, he did a lot of that with developing countries where the people had no confidence in where they could stand on the world stage. But I, I think the particular contribution he made was to the place of women. If we go back to the Riyadh Assembly, with probably only uh, less than 5% of attendees in 1984 would have been women. But if you go to the General Assemblies of today, and I've only missed one, which was the one in Orlando this year, but the eight assemblies I've been to, subsequent to Davis' time, you would have it, that input from women would have grown to at least 50% of the participants. And that's huge. He promoted women's issues with strength, uh, with ability, with vision. And I think that he's recognized for that within organizations of and for the blind around the world. You know, his real talent was to bring disparate groups together. And that was just a huge contribution, which has made the world a much better place. Mm. Uh, Jeff, if I can get you to choose just one thing that you've found most impressive about David, what would that be? Oh, it would have to be his ability to lead. He, he always leads from the front. He, he's a very open person. He's a very wise person. I would have to say he doesn't suffer fools gladly, but he's always prepared to listen, to advise, and the other real ability he's got is the way he mentors people. He brings new leaders through and uh, eases them into the roles that they need to play. Mm. In your opportunities to get to know David and work with him over the years, what would you say is the most surprising thing you've learnt about him? I think the most surprising thing for me is the, the opportunities that have been missed. I saw David grow in every role that he took, took on. I observed him as a leader. Uh, and it's my regret on his behalf, I suppose, that he never had the opportunity for a university education. And equally, the fact that no agency in Australia was prepared to take him on as CEO, because he would have excelled as an academic, and he would have excelled in running an agency. But unfortunately, with respect to the latter, uh, I think paternalism, uh, with sight of people saying, we know what is best for blind people, was alive and well through David's working lifetime. And unfortunately, in many ways, it still persists. Yes. Now, Jeff, it's not as much fun to just talk about the good things about David. So this is the bit when I want you to say something about David he doesn't want you to say. It could be something he said or did or something he didn't say or do. I'm happy with a bit of scandalous gossip about David, which may have no basis in reality. <laughs> well, John, we agreed many years ago um, on all of our adventures that uh, everything would stay at the airport. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he won't mind if I share a few snippets. Um, first of all, traveling with David throughout China, we had a lot of fun 
as well as working quite hard. But just imagine how I felt at formal banquets um, with my blind companion. You know, he's got a very gravelly voice and he, he may think he's speaking softly, but he's usually speaking quite loudly. And he'd say to me, Jeff, what the hell was that that I've just eaten? Uh, sometimes it might have been something like a sea slug, but I think the most memorable was the way he was crunching the heads off pigeons. So uh, that would be one. I can imagine it, Jeff. Yeah. Um, another one, which I won't go into detail, but he did make sure I was released from jail in Manila. And there was no, <laughs> there was no penalty, financial or otherwise. Uh, he was the architect of that. But, but finally, John, uh, Sir Duncan Watson. Duncan dined out on a story for many years. It was a story about him visiting a restaurant in Vancouver where the maitre d' said to him that he wouldn't believe it, but he had had a blind guy in the night before with his friend. They were there for dinner. They had a few beers. They had a bottle of wine. And then the blind guy said to his friend, I haven't seen you for a while. Let's crack another bottle. So there's no prize for guessing who was carrying the lead role on that particular event. But we've enjoyed that story too, that uh, went round and round the houses after that night out in Vancouver. I imagine it would. Look, thank you very much, Jeff, for your valuable insights. My pleasure, John. And as I said at the beginning, it's lovely that somebody's putting together to record what a fabulous Australian you've got on David Blythe. Welcome, David. We finished off last week with the discussion around uh, the various uh, programs that you were engaged with in respect of the new BCA and its objectives and campaigns. And we just got up to a significant point in the development of government policies uh, in respect of services for people with disabilities and the development of the Disability Services Act. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your role and the role BCA played in respect of the development of those um, of those new initiatives. Yes, BCA was very much at that time part of the discussions with government, particularly the Department of um, Social Services. And um, although we didn't have any involvement in the, the actual final act as it was presented, we did have a lot to do with the implementation of it as far as blindness was concerned. Like most of these acts, they're very generic in the way they look at disability and specific areas uh, for blind people were a bit difficult to find at times. There was a very strong view about multi-disability being the only way to go uh, and BCA had pretty strong views about that. Um, we weren't opposed to multi-disability, but we were very conscious of the fact that all the disabled people, all people with disabilities weren't exactly the same and their needs were not necessarily the same. And this was a very difficult issue to put, particularly to um, public servants. At that time, there was a big influx of new people into the department and a lot of them were reasonably young uh, and hadn't had a lot of experience in, uh, well they had no experience in the field of disability and um, a lot of the ideas that they had were, were very forward thinking but they were not good at that time. So do you think it was it was more of an idealistic position without the understanding of how that worked on the ground? Well I think what the government did uh, and Don Grimes in particular, as the Minister did, is they provided a framework in which a, a series of um, acts were passed that enabled people with disabilities to um, access training, um, employment, education and I think the opportunity to become valued part of the community. That was the concept uh, and I believe that the Act in itself was a very good Act. Unfortunately, like a lot of these things, it's in the implementation is where the problems come. 
and a lot of idealistic people were involved in that implementation. Uh, I can give you an example. Um, I was at a, a, a conference, a two-day conference, and um, the, one of the people was there who was a senior person in the department in Victoria. His comment was that um, it, we had to have multidisability because uh, that's the only way to go. All people are equal, and uh, and I said to him then, well, I said, well, how many people with disabilities do you have employed in your department? And he said, we've got two. I said, about how many? And he said, oh, probably about thirty or forty people. I said, yeah, and what do they do? He said, oh, he said they're valued members of staff. Well, I eventually found out that they were two people with a, an intellectual disability and their job was to go around and empty rubbish um, mm, yes. uh, baskets and very tokenistic. But these people who espoused these ideas of equality and that didn't practice it. Uh, they, they talked it, but they didn't do it. And uh, that was the big issue that we faced. And uh, I think as blind people in BCA, we, we fought that fight pretty hard. And uh, under the Disability Services Act, you couldn't get funding for a training program unless it was multidisability. And at that time, I was um, running programs for the RBIB, but I was still very conscious of being a BCA person. And uh, we were we were told that if we had to have the factory and a training program in the one building, they had to have two separate entrances. Uh, we were also told that um, unless we trained other people with disabilities, we couldn't be funded. Well, what I did was that uh, I did a, a study on a number of blind and vision impaired people that we'd helped train and get positions in the community over the previous three years, worked out what their approximate salary was, worked out what their uh, tax would have been, developed those figures and I gave them the department and said well that's what we do and I'm going to give it to the minister if you people keep rejecting us for full funding. I got full funding. Yeah, great job. The A big part of that development of that new mm. federal legislation mm. was about deinstitutionalisation. Is is that a, was that a factor for blind people at that time or was it mainly an issue for people with major significant intellectual disability or physical disability? It wasn't a real issue for blind people at that time because at that stage we were still paying not good wages but reasonable wages in the um, in the factory. Uh, people would uh, this would be before assessments and all that started. Uh, people would be working on you mean some, like wage assessments to yeah, determine productivity. Yeah, yeah. We were paying uh, I would say pretty close to about eighty percent of the uh, basic wage at that time to people because they were doing trades, they were training and most of them worked on piecework and if you worked on piecework in those days you could earn better than the basic wage quite easily. And uh, you know, so that wasn't a real issue to us but getting into open employment was and there'd been a big shift in that at that time and of course what happens with open employment in a workshop situation is that it's the best that leave. <laughs> And of course, yes. it only leaves those that have got maybe other disabilities as well as vision, and and that's when you see the productivity drop and all those issues. And that's what then eventually ended up that uh, what we had here in Victoria ended up like a lot of the other sheltered workshops. And uh, but I don't think we ever got as bad in our payments as some of those were. Mm. And in terms of the negotiations with the department or with the minister. Um, you mentioned Don Grimes. Did you have the ear of Don Grimes? Were you able to get to him in terms of those discussions? We had a couple of meetings with him. Um, we, I, I found him a very approachable person. Uh, and he was totally committed to doing something with people with a disability. There was no doubt about that. He was a, a very strong advocate for us. I, I don't know what his background was, uh, but uh, he was a good, strong advocate. And his concept of the Disability Services Act it was basically a very good act for for that time. It laid the platform for anything that's happened since and I'd say it really was the platform for the NDIS. And the what we're talking about is um, is really the the bulk of the Hawke government. Yep. And um, and then after that 
Um, we had um, Brian Howe take over as minister. Was there? Did you see a shift in terms of uh, attitudes or the um, how those programs were implemented? Yeah, I think Brian Howe was um, was able to um, influence the public service a bit more, uh, and I think they did um, loosen up on a few of the issues. Um, Brian Howe was also a very good minister. Um, he uh, Brian Howe was one of those people that. It was very hard not to listen to him because he listened to you, if that makes sense. Uh, when you went there, Brian Howe didn't talk at you at all. He talked with you, and uh, I, I think that's a, a trait that a lot of people don't have in senior positions. They tend to sit on a party line. I, didn't, I never felt Brian Howe sat on a party line. I, I felt that Brian Howe was talking about something that he believed um, we should have been just the norm. And that's how he, he seemed to approach it. He'd done it very well. And again, in terms of the access that you had personally to mm. the minister or the minister's advisers, mm. mm. did you find that the door was open, that you could get through to him? Um, it could, but it wasn't always that easy. The public service didn't make it that easy. Um, but uh, we didn't we, we didn't overuse that position. Maybe we should have used it more than we did. Um, we were very conscious uh, in BCA that we were the privileged of the disability groups. Uh, we we had most things that other disabilities didn't have. We had the opportunity of education, we had the opportunity of employment, uh, and uh, we had good access to the community. There were issues, um, there always will be issues, but there were serious issues then. But in, if you took a, a line on people with disabilities, we were the more privileged. And unfortunately, I think some of the public servants took a, a view on that um, and sort of said, well, you know, uh, we'd rather bring you down to where they are rather than bring them up to where you are. Uh, I think the, we were pretty well known in the disability group as the ones wearing suits <laughs> because we were very much aware that when we went to an interview with the minister or the department, we dressed properly. Um, when I say properly, we usually wore a tie if we were the guys with a jacket uh, and the girls were going along with us, they would uh, you know, be dressed appropriately. And that was something that we were conscious of all the time. That wasn't always the case with some of the other disabilities, that they didn't see that as important, but we did. And, of course, we were referred to as the suits. <laughs> mm. Mm. The I think that's the point at which we can um, finish our discussion, at least for the time being, in, in mm. respect of BCA and yeah. your function as the president yeah. uh, of BCA, mm. because that takes us directly into the next major phase um, of your involvement in um, the politics of, uh, of blindness and all the development of um, organisations. And, of course, that's in respect of the World Blind Union and the role that you played with that. So perhaps, David, if you could give us the background to where the World Blind Union came from. Yes, well, there were... There was originally the World Council for the Welfare of the Blind, which was a group of international agencies. Well, not international, they were national agencies that all worked together. Their main role seemed to be in um, establishing prevention of blindness programs and uh, having a talk, I think. They didn't seem to do much else. Um, but they excluded organisations of the blind, and this was a pretty... So a point. So they were they were service providers, yes, rather than agencies that were made up of blind people. Yeah, yeah very okay. much so. And uh, they they zealously controlled that position. In in New York, the the big conference, we sent Hugh Jeffrey and two other people across. And they spoke to the whole conference about the fact that blind people in Australia were being neglected and were not allowed to be represented at this 
conference. So was Hugh Jeffrey coming from BCA or yes. from yeah. um, RVIB? No, BCA. Right. Well, everyone was from BCA. Right. And um, so the the advocacy agencies obviously had some voice, even if they couldn't be members. Well, we we were allowed to address that conference, but that's all we got. Uh, right. And then the conference refused us anyway, so we weren't weren't allowed yeah, to become in. And a group of other people saw the, what was happening here and uh, decided to support us. And um, that's how they established what was known as the International Federation of the Blind, which was another international group, but it was made up of organisations of blind people. And there were a number of them. There was in America, there was the NFB and the AFC, AFB. Uh, in England, there was the Blind Workers Union, there was the National Federation of Blind People in England. And in Europe, there were a number of others. In Asia, there were several as well. And that organisation did some good work, actually. It made most of its work in Geneva with the United Nations groups, such as the International Labour Organisation, and it got uh, different policies put through. But unfortunately, policies in those days didn't have a lot of carry with them, but they, you could use them in arguments, but that was about all. And so eventually we realised that... Um, uh, well, I wasn't part of it at that stage, but they, people realised then that it wasn't going to work. We had to do something about merging with the World Council, uh, reforming it, and having a decent worldwide organisation that did work for blind people at a national level. And so in 1984, there was a conference held in Riyadh of the International Federation of the Blind. They had their conference. The World Council for the Welfare of the Blind had their conference. And the idea was to have a joint conference after it with the idea of establishing a single organisation. If it could be done, they were going to try and do it there. What? I don't think anyone thought that we would actually complete it there, but we did. Mm -hmm. What do you think brought the World Council for the Welfare of the Blind to that table? They, they, they had their own position, they had their own interests. Did the, do you think that the breakaway agency was damaging, they saw it as damaging their status, that they were perhaps looking like the outsiders? Well, from the Australian perspective, it was a change of leadership in Australia, which um, was a little less militant uh, against organisations of the blind. Um, and I think also they were very much aware that government policies were changing, um, uh, attitudes were changing in the community, so a number of those factors affected us here. Uh, in other parts of the world, I think economics was an important part of it. And, uh, and generally in the 80s, the, the, the changes were starting to happen in the communities about attitudes to people with disabilities. What do you mean by economic factors? Oh, well, I think the economic factors of trying to run two, two organisations... Um, the costs that were involved there. The World Council had an office in Paris. Um, they had two people working in that. Uh, we had an office in Germany. Uh, we had half a person working in that <laughs> because most of our work was being done by volunteers. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, we just generally um, things were happening that made... There was, there was time for change. And... Although, as I said, the, I don't think anyone really expected to f complete the role in Riyadh when we had that conference. And uh, I was elected to go to that conference for the Federation of the Blind. And uh, two people who are now passed away, Keith Holsworth and John Wilson, represented the National Council here in Australia for the Welfare of the, welfare of the Blind. And... Uh, we were good friends, the three of us anyway, so there was no problem there. I mean, we had different views on many things, but we stayed friends and we were there. Um, so when we went to that conference, um, there was enough goodwill to make it work. There were people that were opposed and um, they were pretty outspoken, but there was enough goodwill 
in the underbelly of the organisation to make it work, and we were able to do that. Do you think Australia was taking a bit of a lead role in bringing those organisations together? Very much so. Australia has a unique position in the world, particularly in the vision-impaired blindness field, in the fact that we're not seen as a major power like Europe or North America, and they were the major ones. We're seen as the battler for the smaller guy. We supported a lot of the Asian countries and some of the African countries at times, South Africa and them, in their issues. New Zealand was also a good supporter like that with us. Um, we were both seen in a very good regard in that regard. We were, we didn't have a lot to gain out of these organisations, or it didn't appear as though we did. I'm sure we did gain a lot, but um, the, the rest of the world didn't see us as part of the power brokers. We were more the sort of people that brought people together rather than forced issues. And whilst you said you weren't sure that the the result would be concluded in terms of bringing the organisations together, you also told me it was a long conference. Well, 16 days. That <laughs> is huge. It was, I can assure you, in a, in a country like uh, Saudi Arabia, it was even longer. Um, and you spent most of that time developing the constitution? We spent eight days on that constitution. Um, I was on that constitution committee and... Uh, we worked very hard uh, to get that constitution up. Uh, there were so many vested interests that were trying to, I don't think railroad it, but they were trying to turn it to what they wanted. What um, we were trying to establish was a representative organisation that could include all the things that they wanted. Like it could include prevention, it could include education, it could include employment. What do you mean, prevention, David? Prevention of blindness. Oh, um, yeah. so so you had people who saw that potentially the role of the organisation was to work on the prevention of blindness. Well, to work with people who could do that work. I mm. mean, um, you know, I can talk a little bit about that in a moment, but the. Uh, that was we had all these groups of people that were restricted to a single issue in the world of vision impairment, and uh, and then they had the United Nations there with their, their ideas. Um, so the World Health Organization, all of these people were sort of on the fringe, and we had to work our way through. And then we did, as I said, it took us eight days uh, to write the constitution and. Uh, many rewrites and uh, we eventually got it and we got it adopted and that constitution has basically stood to today there's been some minor changes to it but not a lot and what we did is we set up seven regions of the world so that um, you know we couldn't have this uh, there was all this fear of domination I mean the North Americans were worried that if you had a country representation they only had two that was Canada and the US Europe had 34 and all this sort of rubbish went on and uh, so and that was a big thing between the North Americans and the Europeans was who had the votes they were very power conscious both of them so we established this idea of having European having unions so we had North America Latin America Europe Asia Middle East Africa East Asia Pacific there were the seven and um, that's how we we set the whole organisation up, and to this day, the only change that's been made to that we've reduced it from seven down to six. Mm. Other than that, it's been exactly the same still today. Yeah, the you were telling me that world politics were playing their role in that convention as well. Oh yes, very much so. As I said, with Europe and that, and uh, the big agencies, some of them didn't want what we were doing. See the. There was probably about six or seven major international agencies like the Helen Keller Foundation in America, um, Sightsavers in England, uh, in France there's a big one, there's a couple in Germany. Uh, these are big organisations that, um, you know, they've got multi-million dollar budgets they had then. And they, they did a lot of good work in what they did, but they were very selective in how they did that work, some of them. And uh, so, uh, and we we believe that there could have been more work between them, 
And, and that's what the World Blind Union has done. Well, in fact, it's brought them all together. They now talk to one another and they tend to work together on programs. It, up till then, if, if a Christian Blind Mission was uh, involved in uh, somewhere, they would make sure that sight savers couldn't get in there, you know, and all this sort of thing was silly things that happened about territorial country countries. So we were able to broker those together and uh, they now talk to one another and, and they realise that there's scant resources so the best thing is that um, let's not just try and do everything for everybody uh, bring somebody else in to give them a hand You even told me that there was a mini war in Cyprus going on right behind you oh, It wasn't very mini it was very vocal um, we had that one and the Turks and the Greek Cypriots uh, were yelling and screaming at one another most of the time and um, the Greeks and the Turks they were at one another and uh, a couple of others uh, Israel and some of the Arab countries and uh, but the, the the frightening one were the, the Cypriots because they were right behind us and uh, and they, they were quite quite vocal and uh, very aggressive because at that time the Cyprus issue was very 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 big in the world and uh, Oh, it was extremely tense. Oh, it was shocking. And, and uh, so you were you were concerned the fists were going to start to fly. I oh, presume. Well, I was worried about fists. I was more worried about knives. Is that right? <laughs> and fists. And, uh, I, I said to John Wilson, "What are we going to do here?" And he said, well, "I don't know." But he said, "I'm keeping an eye on them." So, <laughs> and we want to get yeah. out of there. But it, um, it's amazing that the those world politics play down into those sorts of. Um, those sorts of organisations, the the mm. development of that agency, like you you said that you weren't sure that was going to happen, uh, and yet within the sixteen days it was there. What did that change? What what did it mean to have that that one organisation representing that broader interest base? Well, I think the benefits of that are being seen more today than they were then. Um, because really what we were doing then was feeling our way. Well, I was um, president for the East Asia Pacific region, which included Japan and China and um, uh, the Malay and those places and uh, down to Australia, New Zealand, the Pacific Islands. Well, there wasn't a lot that we did in all those areas, although we were able to get... Um, international massage clinics going in uh, in Asia. Grace Chan in China and Hong Kong organised those. That to was start. to employ blind people? Yeah, and to train them to get a standard because it was very big in China, it was very big in Japan, but it wasn't big in other parts of the world and now it's in Asia particularly. Uh, therapeutic massage is quite a big thing and um, acupuncture and those things and we were able to get that group and they still they still meet on a regular basis they have this international congress that they have on massage and uh, they uh, new developments and all of that and uh, for blind people and it's a huge employer of people in the asia asia region and it's becoming more so even in australia actually although australia's never participated in those conferences we've the odd time one or two people have gone to them but we've never uh, done it as a nation because we we don't have a national setup anyway hmm. um, that was one of the things we did there we also uh, were involved very much in the um, getting uh, sight uh, prevention uh, blindness prevention programs going in China again that was done through Hong Kong with a lot of money from Japan we didn't actually do it, but we helped to facilitate it and uh, create those situations where these things, people talk to one another and got things to happen. Uh, the, uh, they, uh, they run a, a braille competition in Asia now. Um, it's a regular thing. Uh, so education, all those issues were there. In Africa, we had the, uh, the big issues of um, education, prevention of blindness uh, and employment issues. Uh, South Africa took a leading part in that. Uh, the Norwegians and, well, Scandinavians in general put a lot of money into Africa into training programs, so that was all be able to be facilitated through the World Blind Union. And things like that. Latin America was also there, and we got the benefit of Latin America in recent years when, uh, under 
Marianne Diamond uh, with the um, breakthrough on copyright legislation for uh, adaptive, uh, well, anything that's alternative formatted material. I think, though, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves (laughs) because you also told me that the issues around determining the inaugural president and also the secretary general of the World Blind Union were both very political events. And I was wondering if you could talk us through that. Well, the first president we had was Sheikh Abdullah Al Ghanan from Saudi Arabia because he was going to be the um, the next president of the WCWB World Council for the Welfare of the Blind. Um, but he was also a very strong advocate in the international organisation of the blind. So, but um, him being a Saudi Arabian wasn't uh, the most popular person in Europe. And uh, but anyway, we got him up. Why do you think the Europeans had an issue with a Saudi Arabian? No, I just think they have an issue with anyone who's not a European uh, in many ways, but uh, they they sort of look down on him a bit, I think. And uh, there's a lot of jealousy in um, in organisations internationally. Um, Saudi Arabia is seen as a very rich country now, and uh, well then, and uh, uh, they had that, and then like Spain had all the big art, the lotteries in Spain. They were looked down on a bit by some of these European people, but. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of jealousies and old rivalries and a lot of people brought a lot of baggage to the table. Do you think he did a good job as president? I did. No, no, did the you, first president. I think he did because he kept the organisation together. I mean, it was um, it was pretty fractured at times, but uh, he held it together and, uh, and he was the president when the first secretary-general was appointed. He was from Sweden. Uh, and as Arno, and uh, he died two years into the role. He had a heart attack and died. Um, and that was our first big fight in the World Blind Union, I think, was when Europe wanted to put up a candidate, and another one was put up by Spain and Latin America called Pedro Sarita. And the rest of us backed Pedro against the, the European nomination, which upset the Europeans. But, um, it was probably the best decision we ever made, and I think even they admit that afterwards. <laughs> really? Mm-hmm. Now, I think you you told me earlier about an incident that happened in respect of the European push and uh, something that you said in the meeting. Perhaps you could tell us that story. Well, um, I shouldn't mention the name, but a very prominent person from Europe... Um, made the comment after we made that vote that he hoped that this was the last time the World Blind Union would ever ignore a recommendation from um, from the European Blind Union. And I briefly spoke to the, my friend who was next to me and didn't realise there was a microphone there. If they keep putting up resolutions like that, they'll never get one up. And unfortunately, it went over the PA, and uh, there was great cheers and clapping and carrying on. Oh, was there really? (laughs) That can't have made the European delegation very happy. Well, they were voted virtually. um, The vote was—I think they were about the only ones who voted for what they wanted in, in the first place. There might have been two votes for them, but that was all. Perhaps you could explain, because to me, President and Secretary General sound very similar. What what's the different roles? Well, the the secretary general really, uh, I always thought was a superfluous position, but he did do a lot of the work. He did um, a lot of the basic uh, correspondence and general office work dealing with the membership, whereas the president tended to represent the organisation externally and. Uh, also to the various regions. Uh, the, the Secretary General more or less worked within the membership and uh, he did that. Um, Pedro did a bit more than that actually because he was such a great linguist and um, he became a very popular person in the organisation. But uh, yeah, I always thought the Secretary General was a position we could have done away with, but um, other people had different views on that. Uh, uh, the president uh, was more the face of the organisation and was the guy who drove the policy. The secretary-general's job was to implement it. Okie doke. Now, you were speaking about um, Pedro's role and the the role of Spain. You mentioned about the lottery and 
the money behind that. I, I presume that also means that the politics behind blindness in Spain uh, was quite intense. Oh, very much so. Um, the um, ONCE, O-N-C-E, the, uh, the Spanish National Organization of the Blind, they run everything. They At that time, they were running some 33 lotteries in Spain, and uh, they provided all the services for blind people, including education, employment. A lot of blind people employed selling these lottery tickets. It was a huge business in Spain. And uh, their organisation, um, it, well, it was like a government. And... Uh, when I went to visit them there on several occasions, um, you were virtually searched when you went into the building. There were people there with guns. Um, Search for weapons. Yeah. Uh, there were people there with guns that um, were the security guards. And when you had a, a meeting with them, you'd go into the room through one door and they would come in through another door. They would leave through that door before you left, and then you left through the other door to come out. Um, it was um, it was very security minded, and uh, so David, is that about concerns in respect of criminal involvement because of the money behind those lotteries? Well, it, there's a possibility of that, um, but uh, it uh, there's a very strong suspicion that uh, one of their presidents was murdered. Um, uh, he was um, the president when we formed the World Blind Union, a young lawyer, he was probably in his mid-thirties. Um, he was found at the bottom of a lift shaft, which he went down head first, which is pretty hard to do if you step into a, a lift shaft. Wow, um, that um, is, that's hardcore politics, I tell no, you what. I'm no. glad things weren't quite so rough in the Asia-Pacific region. No, they weren't that bad here. But, um, you well, know, on the other hand, you may not have worked in an office with an um, elevator as well, so that <laughs> might have helped. The, yes, it's very difficult to land headfirst in an elevator shaft, I believe. Goodness me, and this is just the fighting over territory, fighting over power and influence and money. Yeah, it's power and money. They're, they're the two most um, divisive things you can have, if too much of either. And uh, you see it happening. I mean, look at our own politics in this country, the way they talk to one another. And that, well, at least we don't throw bombs at one another, but mm. they do overseas. <laughs> well, in some places, <laughs> yeah. of course, yes. Mm. The, um, was some of this money coming back to the World Blind Union? Only through um, the fact that they sponsored the Secretary General for completely, and uh, they um, they ran the uh, Second World Blind Union General Assembly there. They paid for all of that. They did things like that, but they did a lot of work in Latin America. They uh, put a lot of money into Latin America to support services there. They actually had um, paid staff in Latin America doing programs. I happened to be in Spain at a time when the... Um, the father of the president of ONSE, this organisation of the blind over there, passed away. And so I thought, well, I'll go along to his funeral to represent the World Blind Union. At this stage, I was the immediate past president of the World Blind Union. And this village was held in a small village outside Madrid. And two of the um, people that took me were Spaniards uh, who spoke English. And they said, well, what we'll do is that uh, we walk down the street and all the family members will be standing at their gate. And uh, But there'll be all the uh, main officials and that will also be standing at the gates of their properties, you know. They were very close together. And yet you walk down and there's all these guys in black suits standing there, not saying a word, and... Uh, when we got to the end, we probably passed about 10 or 12 groups. And when we got to the end, because uh, nothing was said, you know, we just walked. And uh, I said, oh, what was all that about? And they said, oh, well, these were the various factions and the groups within the ruling party. And uh, that group there didn't talk to that group over there. The <laughs> ruling political party? Yeah, ruling political parties. There were several of them. Yeah. And... Uh, they were there, and uh, but they were in their own groups. And I said, well, you know, how did you keep order? He said, well, all of them probably had a, a security guard with a gun. 
um, and they were all just keeping an eye on everyone else. Gee whiz. <laughs> I, did. Uh, I was glad to get back on the, on that car back in the Madrid that I flew out that night. <laughs> uh, absolutely. You don't want to get in the middle of that. No. It, uh, it was pretty horrific, really. Mm. So you took on an, the inaugural position as the president of the, the East, Asia, Asia. East Asia and Pacific yes. region. Yeah. Um, what did that involve? Obviously, you're getting things started that just don't exist. What, well, what well, it was trying to get the organisations to work together. <clears throat> like we had Japan, Hong Kong, Australia, New Zealand as probably the four more advanced countries in that region. Um, with services, I'm talking about. Hong Kong had reasonably good services, actually. And... Uh, we had to bring Korea in and uh, mainland China, but originally it was Taiwan was the member, not mainland China. And uh, so we had that issue and there. And uh, so well, we, we had a conference in... Hang on, you've got to flesh that out a bit. Talking about hot topics on a world <laughs> stage, the, the issues between... Um, China and Taiwan are still very alive today. So what was happening there? Well, Taiwan was a member of the World Council for the Welfare of the Blind, so it became a member of the World Blind Union. China wasn't a member, so they were not seen as part of it. Although there was a letter where the Chinese said that they were not prepared to be part of it, but if Taiwan was there, they could represent and uh, well, China, Taiwan could represent them. Yeah, wow. well, could represent that area. That area, okay. Mm. And uh, so, and then Hong Kong, of course, was a member. Um, yeah, being, although it was a British protectorate, uh, if the protecting organisation agreed, they could be a member. And they they did agree, so they were a member. And we had Japan, and um, and then of course. Uh, the ASEAN countries weren't part of us at that time. That was um, Thailand, Vietnam, Malaysia, Singapore. Do you think that that's because those countries, including China, were still developing a sense of the roles and rights of people with disabilities, including blind people, and so they just weren't, organisationally, they just weren't in a position to engage? Yes, that's how it was. and. Uh, but after the first year, the first four years, we changed that and uh, the East Asian countries like uh, Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam, um, Singapore, uh, Indonesia all became part of the East Asia Pacific region, and uh, which where they should have been in the first place, but it was just a geographical mistake. So they, they became part after the first four years and that's where we started to develop these programs. Um, working together, uh, you know, sharing their strengths. Um, China, um, Japan was very big on development in helping other countries. Uh, Hong Kong did a lot of good work in China uh, through Hong Kong, through the Hong Kong Society for the Blind and the Hong Kong Blind, work, Blind Union. Um, so these were very good people to work these in. The Philippines, there was work being done there mainly. Most of the work we in the Philippines was coming out of Spain and Germany, uh, but there was work being done there. And the Pacific Islands was work was being done mainly by New Zealand and Australia. So there was, you know, things were happening on a government-to-government -government basis, but nothing much was happening... Um, in between agencies, but the New Zealand Foundation for the Blind was a good supporter educationally for the Pacific Islands. Uh, Australia does a lot of work in Papua New Guinea. Um, Fiji does had the ophthalmic um, school there, and they had a university which covered the South Pacific. So you know there was generally things starting to happen amongst the countries. And then the development of organisations were growing up in that. And uh, we helped to establish the Fiji Society for the Blind, of the Blind, the uh, Samoan, Western Samoan Association of the Blind, um, a number of other countries we helped to establish their organisations. So when did China step in? 
And when they did, they can't have been too happy with Taiwan already well, sitting there. Well, that was the big issue when I became president in 1992. Just be, when, in 1991, I was approached by the then president, Duncan Watson, to stand for president of the WBU. That had happened in a, a conference in Japan. We were all there, Bill Jolly, um, there was about eight Australians there at the time. And this was dropped on me at a meeting, actually. Uh, I had no idea it was coming. And it was, a, well, oddly enough, it was the European Union that put it up. And uh, I asked the reason why, and Duncan just said, well, David, you know, you've performed all the time for eight years that you've, uh, you've always been the guy that mediated between issues. You helped uh, make us get decisions. You're a good decision maker. So I said, well, I'll think about it. I have to come back to Australia and talk to people in Australia about it. So I came back here and then started negotiations. And then just after that... This is negotiations to bring China into... No, no, no. This was negotiations for me to go into the World Blind Union. I mean, I had a job with RVIB. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, it was going to cost a lot of money. Um, BCA didn't have a lot of money, you know. And, um, to and be the, president was going yeah, to be expensive. Yeah. Yes. And... Uh, and so we had to negotiate a lot of these issues and we were able to negotiate all of those issues and there was a bit I'll come to in a moment about the government. But um, And then about three or four months into that when um, the word went out that I was being nominated to be president and it was quite obvious there wasn't going to be another nominee, well, not a serious one anyway. Sure. Um, we started to get these... Um, no, I started to get these messages from Hong Kong telling me that China was very unhappy about the situation with Taiwan. And, uh, and I just said, well... The Chinese government? Yep. Yeah. And, uh, but there were messages coming through Hong Kong. And uh, so I was still president of the region at that time. And I said, well, you know, they agreed that this would be the situation. And, you know, there's nothing I can do about it. And then... I started to get messages from other people in still all coming through Hong Kong but different agencies in Hong Kong and I was told quite bluntly that the vice chairman for something or other, vice premier for something or other in China, um, was very angry that I had uh, allowed uh, Taiwan to call itself China and uh, that uh, I had misrepresented the Chinese people, that they were being ignored and uh, and they were going to destroy me internationally and what they were, you know. They, wow. <laughs> it was heavy stuff, I yes. can tell you. And That's uh, strong language. And uh, I know, and uh, we... Um, so when I'm getting ready to go to... I had to go to um, Cairo for the World Assembly, where I was going to be elected as president. That's when we... Bill Jolly was um, executive officer of BCA and he wrote to the federal government and asked if they could get support for me and Brian Howe agreed to pay me $30,000 a year for four years for my expenses through BCA. BCA managed that. Mm. Yes, they agreed that BCA could do it. And uh, so I had to fly back from... I was at a conference in Sydney and I flew back to Melbourne and I called in to see Brian Howe in his office in Northcote and... Uh, this was, and I was flying out at midnight that night. This is five o'clock in the afternoon. Gee whiz. <laughs> and uh, I was speaking to him, you know, because this was the last I'd been there to thank him and sign the documents with Bill. And uh, I told him about this and I said, what can I do? And he said, well, he said, if you resolve it, you'll get the job as foreign minister. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, what will I do? He said, well, I don't know what you can do, David. He said, I've no idea. He said, well, I, I've never heard of such a thing. I said, well, it's getting worse, you know, the pressure is really building up at the, about this and it's an issue. So I went to Cairo and uh, I was in my room at about 11 o'clock at night, just about asleep actually, and the uh, next thing there's banging on the door. And when I say banging, I mean banging. So I go to the door and he's, must have been about 10 of them, Chinese there, and this guy, Chan, his name was, he marches in with all these people and starts haranguing me about the representation of China and it's wrong that uh, that the uh, 
I can't think of the words he used, but they weren't complimentary mm, of the people. We can in China. imagine. Yeah. And he really harangued on and on and on about this. And what are you going to do? I said, Well, there's a credentials meeting tomorrow. You've been told that. And you can put your case to that meeting. And I said, But there's nothing I can do about it now. Well, my government will not accept the fact that you can be president of the World Blind Union and not allow China to be represented by China, not by Taiwan. And, uh, and anyway, this went on for a while. And they marched out. And I thought, oh, God, what am I going to do? So anyway, I thought I'd try and go to sleep. And about 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning, bang on the door again. They're hammering away. I get out, what's going on? And in they walk again. But this time they got the two Taiwanese delegates with them. They'd been out to the airport. They knew what plane they were coming in on. They came in on a plane at the airport. They met them at the airport came to an agreement, came in, shook my hand, thanked me for all the work I'd done to resolve their problems. <laughs> <laughs> and what they'd agreed was that China would be the representative, but uh, Taiwan could have two of the delegates. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's an amazing story. Um, and I got all the credit for it. Well done. Oh, that's the best of circumstances. The funny you... part, the sequel to that was I went to Canberra for a, another event uh, sometime later. I don't know. The Chinese ambassador was there and Brian Howe brought him across because I'd, I'd told Brian Howe this story and uh, he brought the ambassador across and the ambassador said, oh, Mr. Blige, you're the man who solved the problem with Taiwan and in the world blind you. You are a wonderful man. Thank you very much. Even the <laughs> even the ambassador knew all about it. They knew about it, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it, was, uh, it was the most ridiculous thing I've ever been involved in, but I tell you, it was frightening. In concluding today's episode, I'd like to ask you, David, about your role as the inaugural president of the uh, East Asia and Pacific region of the World Blind Union, just in terms of what your activities were, what it was that you were able to achieve um, in the eight years that you held that position. Well, you have to think about the fact that when I took that position on, that was the first role I'd ever had internationally. I'd had no experience at any international conference other than the establishment of the World Blind Union. And so when I went to Asia, I went there with a clean slate. I had no preconceived ideas of how they operated, what the countries were like, what was there, what was not there. So I approached it in the same way we approached the way we set up BCA. And that was that we, we had to get organisations structured. We had to have a representation of blind people and I insisted on that at each, at each area. That, um, And I didn't have to worry about it in Japan because they already had that in place. They had uh, organisations providing services for blind people and they had organisations of blind people, particularly the Japanese Federation of the Blind, were a very big, powerful organisation. Hong Kong had a, um, had a major organisation, but it had a fledgling... Uh, organisation of blind people and they weren't that well respected and we pushed a bit on that and worked hard to get that up and going and we worked on the same principles in all the other countries that uh, anyone who wanted to be represented they had to have uh, equal representation for organisations of blind people I wrote that into the original constitution so that was the first thing that I was able to achieve with other people of course and uh, then we um, had the conferences and uh, worked out programs. There was the International Commission for um, Massage uh, that was established by uh, Grace Chan in Hong Kong and that was training people in massage, developing standards and uh, bringing that as an employment possibility to other countries, particularly in Asia. That's been very successful over the years and it still exists. Um, Things like that, we got the East Wind going, which was a newsletter for the region. It was being run out of um, Japan. Uh, we had Japan providing uh, services into China and to other countries there that were doing great jobs in, we helped them to coordinate those. Um, we were more of a facilitator than a, an actual provider. I went to the Philippines, I saw how women were being treated there had a big impact on me and made me change some of my, not too much change some of my views, but reinforced views I had that uh, equality meant equality. It didn't just mean um, 
blind men were equal with everybody else. It meant that blind women were also equal. In matter of fact, blind people were equal, in my view. And uh, I recognised that there was as much discrimination within our organ own organisations as there was in the community. So, David, what were the mechanics of this? You, you, at that stage, you don't have the strong internet uh, connections, the strong social media um, that you'd be able to use today. So how was it? How was it that you were able to bring people together and conduct those discussions and make those decisions? Yeah, I wrote some letters. Uh, I spoke to people on the telephone. Um, there was a lot of goodwill um, around, um, particularly in Asia. They were very keen to get something going in Asia. that Really, they had been neglected by the organisations in the past. And, uh, and again, I, I see Australia and uh, particularly in our field anyway, um, was always seen as the honest broker. I mean, we, we had nothing to gain uh, for ourselves out of this other than the fact that we became part of a very strong organisation. We were more givers than receivers and uh, we, we did run one program from Australia which was a very successful program which if you're going to talk to Bill Jolly, he'll talk to you more about it, but where we did a program in Vietnam where we trained women to become Braille teachers and orientation and mobility instructors. We thought this was the best way to get the, the facility of Braille through with through orientation and mobility. And uh, So we done things like that. I went to Vietnam. I saw what they were doing there. Uh, we encouraged them in other ways and the Royal Blind Society in New South Wales provided a recording studio up there so they could record a newsletter to go out to blind people because everyone had a tape recorder and uh, things like that we were able to do. And then in terms of feeding back regional decisions to the main body, what was the mechanism where the region could feed into and influence the the ruling body of the World Blind Union? We ran an international conference every four years. That was two years in between the World Blind Union conferences. And we, although I was in the constitution of the World Blind Union, we were one of the few that held their annual conference at the, general, the World Blind Union's General Assembly. And uh, I insisted on that. And that's where we elected our new officers and everything. So they took the full year term with the World Blind Union. Some of the others did it at different other times and it created a few problems, but we we, we stuck pretty well to the constitutions and uh, we worked together and uh, there was, as I said, there was a lot of goodwill and there were a lot of good people that contributed to it, And but there was good leaders in Australia that helped with that too. David, I think we might finish there mm-hmm. and um, we'll be moving on in the next episode to your election as the president of the World Blind Union and uh, your period in that position. Good. Mm.